Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The rest of you, please open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1. Years ago, before I went to seminary, <clears throat> Mary and I attended uh, a church called College Park in Indianapolis, northwest side of Indianapolis, and we met uh, a friend there, became a, a very good buddy of ours, um, and uh, our, our friend struggled with um, a disability. It was a condition called ataxia, which uh, had an effect on his motor movements, the use of his arms and his legs. And even while he had this condition, he was able to continue to drive. And um, there was a day where our friend was driving and he got to an intersection and he turned in front of another car and there was a, a crash. And our friend came out of the accident fine, but the person driving the other car was killed. And it was a, a young man in his 20s. And um, so my friend, of course, was, was devastated by this and uh, had some conversations with him uh, about this. And it wasn't long after that that my friend announced that he was going to move away. He was going to head to Southern California and, and live there. And I asked him, do you know anybody in Southern California? He said, no. Do you have a job lined up in Southern California? No. So why are you going? And he said, well, I just don't like the weather in Indiana. It's cold here. I just want to go to a warmer climate. And that's what he did. He left his family. He left his friends. He left his church here in Indiana and moved to Southern California. Now, I don't know the man's <clears throat> motives. I don't know all the reasons why he did that. But I've always wondered if the reason why he moved to California is because he wanted to get as far away from this place as he could so that he wouldn't have to be reminded of that car accident. So that he wouldn't have to be reminded of this fairly significant failure, setback in his life. And I wonder how many of you might be here today haunted by some kind of failure in your past. Something you've been running from something that's been kind of hanging over your head, something that you've wanted to kind of come to grips with, but you just can't, and it just is nipping at your heels. Perhaps this Christmas season isn't quite as joyful as you would want it to be because of some failure or some setback this past year. Well, today we are continuing our sermon series, an Advent sermon series called The Mothers of Jesus. And in this series, we're looking at some of the very prominent mothers in the Bible story. We're seeing how childbirth plays this repeated significant place in the redemptive story. And today we're going to be looking at a passage that, on the face of it, might seem a little bit dry and a little bit boring. It's a genealogy, the genealogy that Matthew gives us. And in this genealogy, we're going to see um, the ancestry of Jesus being traced, his lineage, his ancestors before him. And in this lineage, in this genealogy, are included a, a number of mothers. 
but included, included in this genealogy also is not just one, but several significant moral failures. Um, one in particular that we're going to give some time and pay some attention to, but it's just remarkable that such significant moral failures would be included in the genealogy of our Savior. And so what I hope we'll learn here from this is, is this. I mean, everybody's going to fail in one way or another in, in their lives, but as Christians, what we need to learn to do is to fail well. How do we fail well? Knowing we're going to fail, knowing we have failed, how do we cope with our failures uh, and deal with them well? So that's what I'm going to try to pull out of this text. If you'd please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm just going to read the first six verses. <clears throat> rather than the entire genealogy, just the first six verses here, Matthew chapter 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And then the genealogy continues. We'll stop there. Father, I pray that by your spirit you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things even in this genealogy this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Um, there are a number of genealogies actually in the Bible. They're in the Old Testament and here in the New Testament as well. We're seeing this one in Matthew. Um, there's another genealogy of Jesus that's included in, in Luke. And sometimes people get really hung up on these genealogies because they look at them very carefully and they notice that there are some differences one to another. Um, the, the names don't always kind of match up. Uh, but we really shouldn't get too concerned about that because... Uh, these men who are writing these genealogies are giving them to us for different reasons. They, they have different purposes. And it actually isn't unusual at all for genealogies to skip over certain names. So sometimes people look at these and they get all hung up and they think the Bible is completely full of contradictions because the genealogies don't match up. You, you don't need to respond that way. There's reasons why the genealogies are different. And a big reason is because sometimes they have different purposes. So um, there's a genealogy in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 3, actually. And Luke's purpose is to trace Jesus' human ancestry. Um, so in Luke's genealogy, he starts with Jesus, and then he kind of goes backwards from Jesus and goes all the way back to Adam. And so here's how that genealogy ends in Luke chapter 3. It starts with Jesus, and then eventually... It says, uh, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. 
So what Luke is doing is trying to trace Jesus' human ancestry. He wants us to know that Jesus is a human being, a man, a real man, a real human being. Of course, he's God also, God also, but what Luke is trying to communicate is Jesus' humanity. But you'll notice here, the son of Adam, that might bring to mind the sermon that we heard two weeks ago when we started this sermon series uh, about Eve, who was the first mother of Jesus. Eve was Adam's wife, and so we trace, or Luke is tracing Jesus' ancestry all the way back to Eve. And of course, Eve is all of our mother in one sense because Adam and Eve were the very first parents or first couple in human history, Uh, but Eve would certainly serve as uh, Jesus' mother as well. Now, so that's Luke's purpose, Jesus' human ancestry. Matthew has a different idea. Matthew wants to trace Jesus' Jewish ancestry. And so that's why if you look at our passage here in verse 1, it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then in verse 2, he begins the genealogy by mentioning Abraham. Now Matthew's going the other way. Luke started with Jesus, went all the way back to Adam. Matthew is starting in the past and going forward to Jesus. But notice that Matthew doesn't start with Adam. He starts with Abraham. Because what Matthew wants to do is to trace Jesus' Jewish ancestry. And throughout the book of Matthew, he's going to be showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Jewish Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah. But you might remember from our second sermon in this series, as we look at, or as we notice here, the mention of Abraham, that Abraham's wife, remember, was Sarah. And last week we heard about Sarah, who was given this promise that she was going to give birth to a child, even though she was barren, even though she was old. And we heard about how we can believe the unbelievable in some cases, particularly when it comes to God. And so you you see here in these two genealogies, the first two sermons in this series. And then Matthew will continue then, and the genealogy finishes uh, in verse 16. And he says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so we get to... Uh, the mother who is closest to Jesus, the actual mother of Jesus, Mary. We'll talk about her next week. So that's kind of a quick review of where we've been and just kind of putting this whole sermon series together as we think about the mothers of Jesus. But something that Matthew is doing here that's very unusual, and that is that he is giving us this example of of a moral failure in Jesus' ancestry that actually might surprise us in its sordid detail. So as we think about how to deal with failure, how to fail well, there's just two things I wanna show you. As you're dealing with your failures and thinking about your past and these things that perhaps are haunting you or you're preparing for you know, what failures might be coming, two things I want you to know. First of all, it's this. Human failure is pervasive in the biblical story. It's pervasive. Here's one of the most common mistakes people make about the Bible. They think that the Bible is a story of a bunch of virtuous, godly, perfect, upright people who have it all together. And what we're supposed to do is look at the Bible and learn about all these people and try to follow their example as best as we can. 
And if we can only match our lives to the godly lives of these people in the Bible, then maybe God will love us and save us. Very common perception in the Bible, but it couldn't be further from the truth. And we see this in a very startling way here in this genealogy. Look at verse 6. This is the verse I want to kind of focus most on. We're not going to look at every single verse in this passage, but in this genealogy, verse 6 talks about Jesse, who is the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, it says. By the wife of Uriah. Now, why would Matthew word it like that? I mean, some of you know who that's referring to. But why would he say it that way? The, the wife of Uriah. Everybody else, their names are mentioned, but in this case, it's the wife of somebody. What's, what's going on here? Well, let me tell you the story of the wife of Uriah. It's told in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11. And here's what happened. There's a man named David. He's the king, as the genealogy tells us. And the story tells us that David... Um, was in his palace in the afternoon getting up while all the other kings were going to war, it says. David is a king. He ought to be out doing his job, ought to be out fighting, but for some reason he's just wandering around the palace, apparently waking up late. And he looks out his window and he sees a woman. And she's a very beautiful woman. And he decides that he wants that woman and so he gets his servants to go get this woman and bring her to him. And he has relations with this woman. And they find out that this woman has become pregnant. And that woman's name is Bathsheba. Now, one of the big problems in this situation, I mean, what I just described is a number of problems, and one of the big problems is the fact that Bathsheba is married. She has a husband. So David realizes that he's in a tight spot here. He has impregnated this woman and eventually it's going to get out to the husband and then it's going to become public and so it's an issue. It's a problem. So David's got to deal with it. And so the story goes on to tell us how, how he did that. David had a plan. And so what he did is he told his servants, his generals, who were in constant battle at that time, he told them, I want you to get this husband and I want you to put him at the very front of the lines where the fighting is the hardest, where there's a lot of fighting going on and where there's a great chance that this guy will get killed. And so David's generals do that. They put the guy at the front of the line and finally they come and they tell him, it's happened, he's killed, he's dead. And that, 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 man, that man is Uriah. The same Uriah that's referred to here in verse 6. The wife of Uriah. Now, one more detail about Uriah. As we get to the end of the book of 2 Samuel, there's a description in chapter 23 of what are called David's mighty men. David's mighty men. And this was this group of men who fought valiantly to defend David. One of them took on like 300 men at once. Another one fought a lion, actually defeated a lion in defense of David. David's mighty men. 
And in 2 Samuel 23, there's a list of the names of these men. And so I'm not going to give you the whole list here, but at the end of the list, it says this. He's listing all these men. There's 30-some men. There was Zelak the Ammonite. There was Naharai, Naharai of Biroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zariah. There was Ira the Hithrite, Garab the Ithrite, and Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Uriah was among David's mighty men. Uriah was one who was giving himself, risking his life to fight for David. And David went and took his wife and slept with her and had him killed. Now you talk about a moral failure. Why, why is Matthew mentioning this? Why is he saying Solomon by the wife of Uriah? I think what Matthew is doing is just reminding us of David's past a little bit. David was a godly man. There's a lot to be admired in David's life. Let's not forget that. But David was also a man of great moral failure. So what is it that you're bringing here today? What, what is the failure from your past that is haunting you? Maybe you've been fired from a job. Maybe you've been divorced. Maybe you've been divorced many times. You've had failed marriages. Maybe you've failed a class. Maybe you've dropped out of school, never got the degree that you were always longing for. Maybe you've gone bankrupt Maybe you have a history of substance abuse. Maybe you've made some financial investments that have turned out to be very foolish and you've lost a lot of money. Maybe you've alienated friends, alienated family members, alienated sons and daughters. Maybe you have a failed ministry. You started a church. It didn't work out. You tried to do a Bible study. Nobody came. Here at New Life, you tried to get involved in a ministry team and you felt like you just screwed it up. Nothing happened, nobody responded, and you just feel like a failure. And now, you don't want to do anything else. You don't want to step out. You don't want to try to serve because you don't want to fail again. And you feel like you're of no use to the kingdom. Whatever your failure Whatever it is, I can assure you, I, I am quite sure it was not as bad as what I've just described to you in the life of David. I'm quite sure that whatever your moral failure or miscalculation might have been, it's not as bad as what David did. And yet, don't you think David was used by God? Absolutely. Absolutely. David is described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. I mean, isn't that just stunning to think that a man like that could have that kind of moral failure in his background? Sometimes I get concerned that, you know, people come into the church, not just this church, but, but any church. I'm, I'm guessing this happens a lot. People come in and they come with, with backgrounds that are haunting them with all kinds of mistakes and failures in the background and they want to come to church and they come in and they look around at all the people in the church and they just think, I'm not like them. 
I'm not like these people who have it all together. These people, this church is filled with good people, but I'm not a good person, I'm a bad person. I've had a bad background. I've done bad things. I'm ashamed of my past. And so you come to church, but you just feel like you don't belong. You feel like you don't have a place because you're not like everybody else. Don't you see what this is telling us? Human failure is pervasive in the biblical story. The Bible is filled with accounts of people who have severe, significant, shameful, moral failings and yet have a significant and productive place to play in the kingdom of God. Before you conclude that I have nothing to offer here and I cannot contribute and God can't use me, just you know, remember Abraham, he was too old. We heard about that. Jacob was a liar. Moses was a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Jonah ran from God. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep. Paul was a terrorist. Lazarus was dead. And yet all of them used by God in significant significant ways. Human failure is pervasive in the biblical story. And the reason why we're given a story, and by story I don't mean a fiction made up tale, I just mean the Bible is a story. It's a story of history. It's a story of reality. But the reason that human failure is so pervasive is so that we will start turning our attention away from our own human potential and look upward to a God of grace who can really do something remarkable and amazing with our lives. And that's the second thing I want to show you, how to fail well. Take comfort in knowing that you're not alone if you feel like a failure, but also remember that divine grace is preeminent in the biblical story. Divine grace is preeminent. I'm choosing those words carefully. Human failure is pervasive. It's a strong word. It's everywhere. But preeminent is stronger. Divine grace is preeminent. Yes, human failure is everywhere, but grace trumps our failures. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. It says in Romans 5, divine grace preeminent in the biblical story. So let let me show you how this works. Let's return to our text here, uh, this genealogy in particular. I want to talk a little more about um, genealogies and and what they were used for. Um, Genealogies were very, very important in the life of the average Jewish person. Um, you know, today we kind of have an interest in genealogy. Sometimes we might go to Ancestry.com and learn some things about our background. But we don't really hang on to our genealogies for any real practical purpose. But it was very different in Jewish times, um, in the time of Jesus, 2,000 years ago. People clung to their genealogies for some very significant reasons, for for them, the genealogy was kind of an expression of their personal identity. It was like showing their credentials. And it could be used also to prove uh, ownership of property or inheritance rights. Or for instance, when the Jews were in exile and then they came back to Jerusalem, there had to be a way to prove that they were actually Jews so that they would bring their genealogies to prove their ancestry. And in many cases, the genealogy was used as a way of proving a person's character. So it's like, look at all of these you know, godly people in my line. This shows what a great person I am. It was like a genealogy as a way of saying, this is who I am. So it was a little bit like a resume 
You know, we prepare resumes as a way of showing who we are, professionally anyway. And so when we prepare a resume, we include, um, you know, our education and we include uh, the awards that we've gotten. We include uh, certain references. And when we choose references, we make sure that they're people of, you know, high stature, highly respected people because we want to make ourselves look really good. We want to include every positive thing we can think of on our resume. But that's what makes this genealogy, again, so peculiar because there's so many negative things included in this genealogy. There's so many black marks on it. So for instance, let's look back. Verse 3, Tamar, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You know, Pastor Brian preached on uh, the story of Tamar from Genesis a, a couple of years ago. But uh, Tamar is a woman who posed as a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law and had relations with him? I mean, that's creepy, isn't it? That is really creepy. That is R-rated stuff. That's Tamar, posing as a prostitute. But then look at verse 5. Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, well, who was Rahab? Rahab didn't have to pose as a prostitute because she was a prostitute. That's how she made her living, and not only was she a prostitute, she was a Gentile. She was not even a Jew, and there are others here who actually are not uh, Jewish. And then we get to verse 5, and we see, or we're still in verse 5, and we see the mention of Ruth. Now, Ruth, as far as we know, a, a godly woman, doesn't, did not have the sordid past that these other women did, but at this point we might be asking, why are there so many women in this genealogy? We might not ask that, but the people in that time would have asked that because it was a very patriarchal society at the time, and it was not regarded as a positive thing to include women in your genealogy. And yet Matthew doesn't hesitate to do it. I mean, it's wonderful, really, when you look at, through the Bible and just find all the ways that the Bible affirms the place of women we live in a culture that accepts the role of women in society a lot more then, and so it doesn't strike us as quite as um, compellingly as it would have then. But at that time, these kinds of things were unheard of. You know, the fact that, the, that women were the first ones on the scene at the resurrection of Jesus, that it was their eyewitness account of the resurrection that, was, that, that served as the groundwork of the foundation for the gospel writers to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. That would have been unheard of at that time. So repeatedly we get these examples of women playing these very prominent roles. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, why, why is Matthew doing this? Um, this lady named um, Nell Sanukjian, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but she says this, one might suppose that the women in Jesus' genealogy should have all been the finest Jewish women, but they weren't. They were women just like us, Ordinary, tarnished by sin, unlikely to shape the course of history. They are in the Savior's genealogy to give us hope and to foreshadow the kind of people Jesus, the Messiah, came to save. See, grace trumps human failure. We're seeing these failures in this genealogy so that we can marvel that the grace of God could take these failures and use them and save them and redeem them. Friends, it does not matter. Don't you see from this? It doesn't matter 
what your pedigree is and what your ancestry is and what your past has been, what your history's been like. It doesn't matter the sins that you've committed, the failures you've endured. It doesn't matter if you've committed murder or child molesting or abortion or racism. I'm not saying those things aren't serious, but what I'm saying when it comes to the kingdom of God, none of those things are disqualifiers for you. Because grace trumps our failure. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, you can have a place no matter what your history is in the kingdom of God. Tim Keller says it like this, Jesus' holiness and goodness cannot be contaminated by contact with us. Rather, his holiness infects us by our contact with him. That's the way the gospel works. Our failures don't ruin the kingdom. It's the righteousness of Christ which redeems us and gives us a place in the kingdom. Now, does this mean, I want to be clear here because there can perhaps be some wrong conclusions drawn here. That's one of the tricky things about being a preacher is trying to anticipate, okay, if I say this, what are they going to think I mean by that? what conclusions might be drawn sometimes you kind of try to have to head these things off does this mean then that our past sins don't matter I mean I I can see maybe some of us thinking that way well if 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 God incorporates all this moral failure into his plan well maybe I ought to just go out and do whatever I want does this mean that your sins don't matter and the answer is no that's not what this means So if we can go back to the story of David and Bathsheba, David and Bathsheba had relations and a child was born, but you might remember from the story that that child died. God sent Nathan to David and Nathan confronted David and convicted him and David confessed his sin. Finally, he acknowledged, after some time had passed, he acknowledged his sin with Bathsheba. He, he, he confessed it to Nathan, and Nathan had these, I mean, these words must have sounded so sweet to David. He said, the Lord has put away your sin, David. Isn't that remarkable that that sordid tale that I told you about David with Bathsheba and Uriah was forgiven by God? looking ahead to the blood of Jesus Christ, which was, sufficient, which was sufficient to forgive that sin. Forgiveness was granted to David, but there were still consequences to that sin. That There was still heartache connected to that sin. The child died, and in 2 Samuel, when the servants come to know that the child died, they were going to go tell David, and it says in the text that some of them were concerned about telling David because they were afraid that he was going to harm himself. David was despondent. David was in the pits because of what he had done with Bathsheba. That's what sin gets you. Sin destroys, sin wrecks lives. No, sin is not okay. No, this is not an invitation to sin freely, that grace may abound all the more. What this is saying and what I'm trying to tell you is with regard to your past sins, those things that you can't get free from, those things that are haunting you and maybe paralyzing you and keeping you from stepping forward in faith and serving God in some way. I want you to know that God can take those things in your past and redeem them and use them for good purposes today, now. 
that you can be a blessing in people's lives and somehow this God of grace is going to use those things in the past as an instrumental way to bless others. I mean, think of David. What, what did David do after this? He wrote Psalm 51, which says, Hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And, and of course, there's a lot more in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, one of the most beloved psalms in the Bible. This psalm has brought peace and comfort and strength to Christians for 3,000 years. And it wouldn't have been written if David didn't commit that sin with Bathsheba. Isn't that odd? Now, is that, is that condoning that sin? Is that saying that that sin was okay? No, no. <laughs> but it is saying that God took it and then ministered to David. And by the spirit of God's gracious, kind intervention, David wrote this psalm that now is being used to bless you and me, even today. And of course, we know that another child was born. And we look at verse 6 again. Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So the child died, but David went back to his wife Bathsheba, and they conceived again. And this child's name was Solomon. And Solomon is now included here in the lineage of Jesus who was called the Christ. Wow, I mean, God's, God's ways are higher than ours, aren't they? I mean, they, he could figure out a way to use such a shameful thing and use it for good. If you ever want full and complete confirmation that failure is not final, look to the cross. There's Jesus, the Son of God, King of Kings, nailed to the wood, hanging there, dying. All these people had so much hope in this Savior, but there he was. The Roman authorities got the best of him, the Jewish authorities got the best of him, and now he's about to die, and people are standing before the cross, and they're saying, if you're the Son of God, why don't you come on down? Oh, here's this guy who said he could save others, but he can't even save himself. In other words, what they were saying was, what a failure. What a failure is this Jesus. And then three days later, out of the grave he comes, rising from the dead in his glorious resurrected body having now finished and accomplished salvation and forgiveness of sins for all who would trust in him. A risen, glorious king who promises that the day is going to come when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and every knee will bow. And what we find is what seemed to be a failure in the death of Jesus was just one step, very crucial step, but one step, on the road to glory. And so friends, I would encourage you to look at your own failures that way. If you're a Christian and you're clinging to this Jesus, you can have that same kind of hope that you're being conformed into the image of Jesus. Jesus is one who seemed to fail, but it wasn't a failure. It was the means to glory and God can do the same thing with all your failures. They can be just simply steps on the way to greater glory for you 
and for his kingdom. We hear a lot about committing our future to God, and we should do that. But perhaps this morning God is calling you to commit your past to God. Have you thought about that? Taking your past, whatever those failures are, laying them at the foot of the cross and pleading with and expecting God to do something great with these failures. That's what God does. Let's pray. Father, we are so blessed by your word. Um, Thank you that you are a God who takes failures and uses them for great purposes. Lord, do that with us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.